My name is L, and I'm a transgender woman talking about disability. I recently watched a film called Crip Camp. It is on YouTube, or not on YouTube, it's on Netflix. You can find it on Netflix right now. It was published originally in 2020, I think during the pandemic, and it features uh, a bunch of um, famous um, uh, activists and people that were heavily involved in the development of the dis- the disability rights movement and the eventual passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, it was a fabulous uh, film for me. I learned so much by engaging in this documentary. I learned a whole bunch of things that I hadn't known, and I found it deeply touching. So if you haven't seen Crip Camp yet, uh, I highly recommend it. Essentially, it tells the story of this hippie, Woodstock-like summer camp in New York in the 1970s where people who were disabled in a variety of different ways converged uh, during the summer and uh, built friendships and got to know each other. And some of the guiding principles were that, you know, we should let people decide what they want to do and not to limit them because of ableism or because of external expectations or because of whatever. And it sort of addressed this theme that often people who live with disabilities are treated as though they are incapable of taking care of themselves, incapable of having reasonable decisions, are, you know, lots of agency is removed from their lives, and more so than what is actually necessary um, in terms of their survival. Uh, You know, there's, it's kind of, it's a really, really fascinating look at some of the experiences of people who live with disabilities, but also the history, because it was out of this summer camp in New York that the the possibility for the ADA to be created developed. It was it's really an incredible story. You you gotta watch it. Um, and I guess that film came to mind because I was recently you know kind of perusing through the news and on Reddit like I do and so on. And I read a story from October of twenty two. So it's been you know six eight months ago, but about a district court in um, Virginia, I believe, that ruled that trans people can be covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act, or at least people who've been diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Now, this was a ruling, I believe, that was made in a federal court, and it was the first time, I believe, that such a ruling on the federal level has ever been made. And, you know, there was a lot of conversation about it amongst trans people. I will publish, um, or I will add a link to a PBS article about this, but it was in Richmond, Virginia. Um, And it, you know, it got me thinking about disability and whether or not being trans or having gender dysphoria is a disability or should be considered a disability and the lots of different ins and outs about that. Um, 
I read a book four or five, I don't know, it's been quite a few years ago by this guy named Mark Yarhouse. He teaches at Wheaton College in Illinois. He's a conservative evangelical Christian, but he's also a therapist. And he is uh, someone who is not affirming of trans people. Uh, Although I would say that he uh, sees us with compassion instead of just outright disgust. And he wrote a book called Understanding Gender Dysphoria, and it's primarily written uh, for people who are cisgender to read to understand us better, and specifically for cisgender conservative Christians to read. And it doesn't involve the voices of trans people in the book. So Mark Wheaton himself is not a trans person. So it's sort of a book that's um, about us, uh, but not really including us, which is problematic on lots of levels. In any case, when I came out of the closet, there were a lot of people who recommended this book to me um, or or who came to me and asked if I recommended that book or what I thought about it, blah, blah, blah. And so I myself did go ahead and read it so that I knew what people were sort of, you know, talking about when they brought it up to me. And I have to say I'm not the biggest fan, (laughs) as most trans people who read the book are not. Uh, He essentially lays out three different what he calls frameworks for understanding trans people. One of them is sort of the sin or what he calls it the integrity framework, which is essentially trans people are evil and wrong and are committing heinous, horrible sin by being honest about their... uh, gender dysphoria and specifically taking any action uh, on the external level to address it. Uh, the other, the next framework is the disability framework where he frames gender dysphoria as a disability um, for which Christians should be compassionate, which, you know, is a step in the right direction. Uh, and then finally, he talks about the diversity framework, which is sort of this belief that trans people are part of natural diversity of humanity and should be accepted as such on the surface, regardless of their choices about gender, which is more uh, what I believe and advocate. In any case, uh, you know, reading his perspective about the so-called disability framework also led me to think this question, like, should trans people be considered uh, disabled? Or, you know, is it reasonable to consider gender dysphoria as a disability? And so for today's episode, I want to reflect a little bit on that and some of my thoughts that I've had about this question. And I want to do it as respectfully as possible. Um, I would love to hear your answers to that question. I would love to hear what you think about it, especially if you were someone who lives with um, a disability. You know, if you have, uh, if you, you know, have a form of paralysis or you have a chronic illness that uh, requires you to have accommodations, um, I would be curious about your take on whether or not you think uh, gender dysphoria should be considered a um you know, a disability. I can see how for some people who are 
because there, it's true that some trans people, if not all trans people, maybe not all, but many trans people, we certainly do become debilitated by our dysphoria. Some of us, to the extent that we actually try to kill ourselves, in fact, a lot of us try to end the pain of that suffering by by killing ourselves. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I wonder if it, it raises to the surface of disability, you know, or raises to the level. Uh, you know, critics of this perspective, people who say, no, trans, like trans, you know, being gender, you know, having gender dysphoria might be considered a medical condition, but it should not be considered a disability. And one of the reasons is because um, gender dysphoria is treatable and if not resolvable, you know, uh, the lived experience of many <clears throat> trans people is that gender dysphoria can be calmed down to such a degree that it's not something that we think about all the time. And especially if we're able to pass as cisgender in a transphobic and gender hierarchical society, we may even be able to live, you know, a quote unquote normal life where our dysphoria doesn't hold us back and doesn't affect our day-to-day -day living and day-to-day -day operation. You know, some folks <clears throat> who hold to that disability framework might say, well, you know, even under this, it's, it's chronic, you know, it never fully resolves. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we do have to take lifelong uh, hormone therapy. We, uh, many of us will never pass a cis. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't know. <clears throat> it kind of feels like I would lean more toward that there's a spectrum of, you know, chronic medical conditions versus disability. And I would lean toward placing gender dysphoria as a chronic medical condition, not a, a dis, you know, a disability in this sense. Um, I've heard other people saying that, you know, a disability is something that affects every sphere of life and negatively um, impacts an ab a person's ability to um, function in, w in sort of fundamental ways, getting around, bathing, eating, speaking, seeing, hearing, uh, going to work, having a job where, you know, the disability affects that and unless accommodations are made, may leave people out, uh, may exclude people from many spheres of life. And that's part of the reason why we needed the ADA. It's part of the reason why we needed the American Disabilities Act to force ableist companies, ableist individuals, ableist schools and government policies to accommodate disabled people, to accommodate their disabilities in such a way that they are able to participate in uh, life of the society uh, where the ways that things were set up, whether we're talking about architecture or the delivery of media or whatever, uh, were not designed in a way to accommodate them. And so, you know, some people would say, look, you know, using the correct pronouns, uh, not misgendering us, that doesn't count as an accommodation. You know, that's not the same thing as, you know, making sure there's someone 
present uh, to translate uh, in terms of, you know, like say someone who uh, cannot hear or, you know, is deaf or partially deaf and who needs uh, to be able to either see um, uh, closed captioning or to be able to see sign language in order, in order to be, uh, in order to participate, right? Um, pronoun use doesn't count as accommodation, a lot of people would say, and therefore, you know, gender dysphoria doesn't count as being a disability. So uh, there's a lot of, uh, I think, and honestly, I think um, rightly, you know, concerned, or there's, there's a lot of rejection to this idea, a lot of pushback against it because of the ways that it, you know, by, by identifying gender dysphoria or trans identity as a disability because of the way that that may undermine or make invisible the greater suffering that many people who are, uh, uh, who do experience disability, um, have to go through life on a day-to-day basis. And in a lot of ways, I feel compelled by that. Um, so I've mentioned the word ableism here in this episode once. And essentially by ableism, I mean, um, you know, not accommodating or not making any effort to or just refusing to accommodate someone, say, that, uh, you know, needs a wheelchair for um, mobility. So not having a lift in the facility or not having a ramp or having no way for someone to enter a door or having a really narrow door or whatever. That's ableism. Uh, scapegoating disabil- uh, disabled people. So blaming disabled folks for different aspects of society. Or um, I think that a, one way that dis- uh, ableism shows up is just a, a lack of consideration. Just not even thinking about, well, what if you know, what about the people that are in our community that can't um, see, uh, you know, adequately or normally? Um, you know, what about people that can't uh, hear? What if, what about people that can't use uh, their arm or their leg or they don't have an arm and a leg where the average person might? Um, I think a lot of times disabled folks just aren't considered when events are set up, um, when parties are planned, or when buildings are built, or when organizations are established. Um, so ableism can look like that. Uh, ableism can look like jokes, you know, or disdain, or making disabled folks the punchline. Um, it uh, can happen in the design of facilities. It can happen in architecture. Uh, it shows up in lots of different ways. And so some of what uh, the, the ADA, the Americans with Disability Act of 1990, did was forced builders, anybody who's creating public spaces, to uh, create, to make reasonable effort, efforts to accommodate and to create access for people who are disabled. And another thing that I've seen, actually, though, is there are some, some aspects of... Um, the community of disabled people that have addressed languaging, which does feel somewhat like 
the way that the trans community has sort of worked through how do we want to language this? How do we want to language ourselves? You know, like there was a time when we were known as transsexuals and now we don't really use that term for a variety of reasons, at least not as much. We use the word transgender more commonly. And in some, you know, remote similar way, uh, you know, we used to word the, we used to word the, use the word handicapped, which now you know, among some, I think is considered a slur or on that level. And some disabled folks even prefer not to use the word disabled and instead use something like differently abled or um, neurodivergent or, you know, atypically abled um, kinds of things. So where it's a non pathologizing, a non-stigmatizing way to describe differences in abilities. Um, and so in a sense, part of the way that we can push back against ableism, besides just like fucking considering <laughs> differences that people have, is adjusting the framework for what we consider to be normal, what we consider to be ability, what we consider to be the standard thing, which again has resonance for me in the larger conversation about trans rights and about gender because you know there is something that I think that the you know uber conservatives the GOP have right and that's that you know they're freaking out about the potential destruction of gender as a system gender as a hierarchy and I think that they're to a degree they're correct like, that's what we want. We want to see the hierarchy crumble. We, we want to see the, the structure where all of society is built around two and only two genders and where the male gender is higher up than the female gender. Uh, we want to see that dismantled. And we don't think it's valid. We don't think it's based in science. We don't think it's based in the lived experiences of people. We think that it is for the most part, intrinsically oppressive and designed to raise up one group at the, extents, uh, at the expense of another. And so, yes, we want to adjust the framework. We want to adjust uh, the sense of that gender and sex don't have to be intimately, intricately intertwined, and that we as people can uh, adjust those and be honest about those in a variety of ways. So, you know, there is some resonance there between, uh, to me, between ableism and um, transphobia. Now, so how do I see it? How do I relate with this, you know, conversation or question about disability? Like I said, I, I would be really interested to hear your points of view. Um, I am not someone who considers herself disabled. Um, I consider myself to be uh, quite typically abled uh, or conventionally abled. I like that word. I used it in a talk that I gave over the weekend, conventionally abled, right? Sort of the, I'm able to do most of the things that most people are able to do in a way. And I'm able to take care of uh, my personal needs, myself. I'm able to you know, prepare food and go shopping and operate a car or even heavy machinery. I have a CDL. Like, you know, I can't really think of any 
any or many specific tangible ways that I am disabled. I do have another number of chronic medical conditions um, that require either medications or some kind of you know device or, or medical equipment, but I don't know if I consider that disability per se. Now, I think of <clears throat> you know being trans or having gender dysphoria as something more like you know needing glasses in order to see better. Um, it's something that you know we're born with or we're born with a propensity to something that we can't affect. It's something that we didn't choose, but it shows up in our life. And if we want to be able to feel better and to read better and to see well and maybe even drive a car. Uh, we need to go have our eyes checked and to have um, some kind of personalized treatment to adjust the body that we were given. Now, with glasses, there isn't really a social component to it. I mean, someone might make fun of you or call you four eyes, but I think that it's, you know, pretty minimal in this day and age. So, you know, that doesn't commute uh, or compute because the social stigma associated with being trans is extreme. Uh, but, you know, aside from the social aspect, I, I think that trans, you know, I think it's maybe more like someone needing glasses uh, than it is someone who must use um, a wheelchair or other similar devices to be able to get around to live their life, to go to work, to drive a car, to go to the store, etc. Um, you know, I do feel like there was a time early on in transition where the disab disability framework was a, a, an entryway for me to have compassion on myself. It was a way for me to start having self-acceptance. You know, I was born with gender dysphoria. Uh, I didn't ask for it. I didn't develop it because of some failing of my mom or dad or because of whatever. It, there's a genetic predisposition in there somewhere where my body uh, and my brain expected to be treated like a girl and to have the body that is generally associated with girls, right? And, uh, and so treating that like a disability is something that I was, you know, just born with as part of the variation of the world, uh, helped me to accept it. You know, it's not normal. It's painful. It's awful. I would have rather not been born with it. I would have rather been born cis. Uh, and honestly, I would have been rather been born cis in either gender than trans, at least at the time, that's how it really felt. Um, and uh, so that that really helped me and that in some ways paved the way for me to get to a point of something that in the therapy world we call radical acceptance, um, which is a way of accepting reality as it is. So instead of labeling something, like instead of labeling gender dysphoria as good or bad or evil or wrong or whatever, accepting it as it is without judging it. You know, um, we that may include also accepting the suffering that it brings or the pain that it brings or the consequences of it being there. Um, but it stays away from, I wish I could have been, why couldn't it have gone this way? 
Um, how is it that everyone else has to, you know, gets to have this, but I don't? Why did God make me this way, etc.? That all those things would be the opposite of radical acceptance. Radical acceptance is this is how I am. This is who I am. And maybe in some mystical spiritual sense, God made me this way. Like maybe in some mystical way, my reason for being here on the planet is connected to my being trans and my experiencing gender dysphoria, which for me is eventually where I got emotionally. And and I kind of live in a place like that today. Um, you know, I certainly feel radical acceptance about my gender and about being trans. Uh, It is just the reality of what things are. And there is also a sense in which I see me as a trans person, and I see that as part of why I'm here on the planet. And I probably would say that I think that for some reason, I was made this way and that it's tied to my purpose as a human. As, as a human. And, you know, I understand how that might be offensive to some folks if you're not spiritual or if you're not religious. Um, I can see completely how that would stick in your craw. And I, I would love to hear about it, actually. I'd love to hear the critiques of that viewpoint um, because I know that it, it doesn't work for everyone. Um, but for me, I believe in some kind of, like, I believe in God in one way or another. I don't know if I believe in the God that you believe in, but I believe in the divine. And I believe that somehow I was made in the image of the divine and that God made me this way for a reason, and that God made me with gender dysphoria, and that God blesses my transition and my attempts to alleviate that suffering. Um, and I know that there are lots of theologi- theological questions that that brings up that may not be resolvable or may not be satisfactory, and I I acknowledge that, and I I own that. Um, Like I said, this is a mystical thing for me. Uh, It's not something that I hold to hard and fast, but it is something that helps me with my own acceptance. Um, There is a story, and now I'm getting real, and now I'm really putting on the pastor hat for you. There's this story in in the Bible, um, in the New Testament, in the book of John, chapter 9, and it's about this man who was born with a disability. He was born blind. And there's this interaction that happens between him and Jesus, which was this, you know, spiritual leader um, of what became the Christian movement. Um, and he has an interaction with him. And But it's not just with Jesus and this man who was born with blindness, but it was between them and and a third group, which was sort of the religious leaders, the religious establishment of the time. And essentially, these leaders approach Jesus and they say, hey, look at that guy over there. So already you're seeing ableism happening in this story, right? They're talking about this human being, uh, but not with him, uh, not including him, not asking him what his interpretation of this is, but instead 
using it as this like theological political debate thing, which of course, like we wouldn't understand anything about, right? Because that doesn't happen today. That was a joke. Um, <laughs> anyway, so they ask him, they say, why was this, they, the, these religious leaders asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it because he sinned or was it because his parents sinned? Essentially, they say their assumption is that he has, he experiences blindness because God is punishing him because he did something wrong or because his parents did something wrong. And it was this like ongoing debate in that time and place in those religious systems about, you know, when people suffer, why does it happen and whose fault is it? And so they're wanting, you know, the Jesus to weigh in on that. And he has this really interesting answer. He says, it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his parents' fault. Neither he nor his parents caused this. Um, And he says, he was born this way uh, so that God would be glorified or something like that. Or so that, you know, God's work can be seen in the world. And then the man uh, is granted sight. He's able to see from that moment on. Now, there are lots of problems in this story. There's probably lots of ableism in there. Um, And there is some way in which I resonate with and see myself in this person who was born with blindness. Um, I was born with gender dysphoria. It's something that causes a lot of suffering. It's something that causes... Um, me to be talked over or left out, you know, Mark Yarhouse, not including trans people in your conversations. Um, You know, it leads me to be an outcast in society in some ways. So there's this condition that I was born with that causes suffering. Um, And I don't think that it was a punishment. I don't think that I caused it or my parents caused it or anybody caused it. And in some crazy way, as it is healed, uh, as some of the pain is healed in me, as my body is changed in such a way that it relieves my dysphoria and I feel more and more like myself, that somehow... um, God is able to use that for something beautiful in the world. And to be honest, one of the things that helped me uh, to come to peace with and to make the decision about transition had to do with this. You know, I hadn't ever considered that transition could or might be a form of calling. And in the end, when I decided to go ahead and go through with transition, I went through with it um, less as a relief to disability and more as this sort of sense of spiritual calling that there was some crazy way in which my destiny as a human being lied on the other side of going through transition and that by alleviating some of that pain by alleviating some of that suffering I was going to be able to make some kind of mark on the world and help other people in ways that I couldn't if not for that and of course it goes without being said probably that all of that like none of that would be possible unless I was born trans in the first place unless I was born with gender dysphoria in the first place so 
after all of that, does that mean I think that being trans is like a disability? And I would say, you know, probably in the end, no. Um, however, I do think that there are, you know, reasonable similarities that help to understand why the question comes up. And I do think that there are parallels and things that we can learn as, um, you know, conventionally abled or typically abled people um, are able to learn from folks who, uh, who do experience disability and to incorporate into our lives and to better cope with the suffering that we have. So, um, again, now for the third time, I'm going to say I would love to hear from you on this topic. Do you think that gender dysphoria should be considered a disability or being trans should be considered a disability? Why or why not? Do you resonate with my little story about John chapter 9, especially if you're a Christian out there listening? Does that, you know, how does that sort of take on the story uh, strike you? Have you ever read trans people into that little piece? Um, what are your thoughts about Mark Yarhouse and his book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria? I do not recommend it, but if you've read it, I'd love to hear what you have to think. Um, and uh, we will go from there. Uh, thanks yet again for listening. I hope you liked the interview with Rachel last week. Thanks for tuning in on that. And we are back with another episode this week. As always, I greatly, greatly appreciate your reviews, your ratings of the show. Thank you for sharing the show on your social media networks, in groups, uh, wherever. Um, we are up over 15,000 total listens in less than a year. We're sneaking up on the one-year anniversary, but we're not there yet. And that is absolutely incredible you know all like lots and lots of folks have tuned into the show uh, whether for long or short or for who have you know subscribed and become active followers it's you know all over the spectrum but i'm so grateful to have you along with me in this journey um, you can learn more about me at estherlowen.com or you can send me an email at twatpodcasting at gmail.com that is an email address that is spoken firmly with my tongue in my cheek. Uh, thanks for uh, your love and support once again. And I am indeed a transgender woman talking. And my name is Still L. <laughs>